times of transition bring uncertainty with them. That's what we saw last week as we looked at the first part of this chapter. Because this chapter tells us about the transition from the ministry of Elijah to the ministry of Elisha. Uh, Maybe as we read the story we don't get the full sense of tension and anxiety that there is here. Because we know that after Elijah goes up to heaven, that Elisha is going to be prophet in his place and everything is going to be fine. God is going to use Elisha powerfully just as he had used Elijah. But the people at the time don't know that. They were in a similar position to what we are today when we see faithful Christians passing away, when we see godly ministers and elders coming to the end of their earthly pilgrimage. And how do we react? Well, we tend to worry about what will happen next. And we mightn't state it as bleakly as this, but sometimes it's nearly as if we worry whether the cause of God will survive at all. But God in his kindness has given us this chapter to counter that way of thinking. Now I guess if we had strictly been looking at the life of Elijah we could have finished at verse 11 uh, when Elijah goes up into heaven. Though I suppose since he doesn't actually die uh, where do you you end a, a, a series on the life of Elijah? But, but if it was simply a study of, of Elijah, uh, we could end at verse 11, uh, perhaps coming back to look at, at Elijah's appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, that we referred to earlier on in this series. But this whole chapter is put together in such a way to teach us that even when Elijah is gone, God's work will go on. Uh, So verse 15 tells us that the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. But then as now you had people hankering for the old times. uh, People trying to preserve an era that was coming to an end. And so in verses 16 to 19 we have 50 men searching for Elijah for three days. Elisha tells them not to do it. He tells them effectively to stop hankering after the past, but, but, but they don't listen and their energy is wasted. Elijah had been God's man for his day, but Elisha was God's man for this new day. And what is it in verse 15 that leads to the people recognising that? Well, it's that Elisha does what Elijah had done. In verse 8 of our chapter, Elisha, or Elijah takes his cloak, rolls it up, strikes the water of the river Jordan, and the water parts, and they're able to cross. And then in verse 14, Elisha does exactly the same thing. And he says, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And the answer, of course, is that he's right there. Elijah may have departed the scene, but God hasn't. And so the two main points we drew last week from the first 18 verses were that God's work goes on even though times and people change. And secondly, that God's work goes on because God doesn't change. When times and people change, we wonder if God's work will be able to go on, but it will because God 
doesn't change. And what we're going to see from the rest of the chapter this evening is that God's methods don't change. God's methods don't change. Because perhaps someone will say, well, yes, I agree that God doesn't change. I agree that God's work does go on. But we need new methods for a new generation. We live in a visual age. People have shorter attention spans. The idea of, of one man standing at the front talking for 30 minutes on a Sunday, it's not going to cut it anymore. Well, what we see from Elijah and Elisha is that even though Elisha isn't a carbon copy of Elijah, and even though their, their ministries ha- have slightly different emphases, the method they use is the same. And what is that method? Well, it's declaring God's word. Uh, this chapter shows us in a number of different ways that God's methods don't change and that Elisha's ministry isn't going to be anything radically different from Elijah's. So where do we see that in this chapter? Well, the Bible doesn't just tell us things by the words it uses, but also by how it's structured. And this chapter begins with Elijah and Elisha going from Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan. So, so boys and girls, two cities and a river. Bethel, Jericho and the Jordan. And once Elijah's gone, Elisha retraces those steps in the opposite direction. Crosses the Jordan, then goes to Jericho, and then goes to Bethel. Uh, so... Elisha is going to the same places that Elijah went to. And it's just a, a, little, a little sign that, that this is going, isn't going to be some uh, radically different ministry. Uh, and so that shows us that these two verses at the all, uh, these two miracles rather at the end, uh, they're not just tacked on, uh, but they're a key part of the chapter. So the, the pattern is Jordan, Jericho, Bethel. And once Elisha leaves the Jordan, he goes to Jericho, where he heals the water, and then to Bethel, where he heals, where he curses the youths. So these two miracles are here to shed more light on the theme of the chapter, which is that God's work goes on. And in particular, they show us that Elisha hasn't come up with any revolutionary new methods. For Elisha... Like Elijah, plan A is the word of God and there is no plan B. That's really what these two miracles are about. How was the water of the city purified? Well, not by the salt, it's just an outward sign. Uh, The real answer is in verse 22. According to the word that Elisha spoke, the word does the work. Then in verse 24, what is it that brings the boys to a sudden death? Well, it's the bears that maul them, but only after Elisha cursed them in the name of the Lord. So the new prophet on the block doesn't have any snazzy new methods. All he has is the word of God, which is all that Elijah had. If you look back, For example, the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 17, it says that Ahaziah died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. 
And in verse 22, we have nearly the same phrase, according to the word that Elisha spoke. So there is a a new man, but there are no new methods. All that either Elijah or Elisha had was the word of God. And here's where it touches down, is that that's all we have to reach this community. We don't have a big budget or a huge number of people or extraordinarily gifted people. No harm to us. But we do have the word of God and that's all we need. But what will our temptation be? Well, one of our temptations will be to think that we need more. To look around and perhaps see very little happening The old conversion here, a new member here. But we can think, well, if we just change what we're doing, then more people will come in. But we see the results all around us of churches that have lost their confidence in the word of God and tried other things. J.P. JP Struthers, uh, one of my uh, ministerial heroes, his, his best friend was a minister called James Denny. And in 1892, Denny wrote to Struthers about the powerlessness of churches when they branched out into poetry and politics. He said that their impotence was so obvious that he wondered why they couldn't take the hint and stick to preaching the gospel. Take the hint and stick to preaching the gospel. But sadly they didn't take the hint. They didn't stick to preaching the gospel. And by and large churches in Scotland have continued doing anything rather than preach the gospel. Unsurprisingly the Church of Scotland is losing about 10,000 members a year. Even before we get to the details then of these final uh, verses... uh, the miracles show us that God's methods doesn't change. God uses his word. But these miracles also show us the two effects that the preaching of the gospel will have. And, and here it's described very starkly in the language of blessing and curse. At Jericho in verses 19 to 22, God's word comes in blessing to a city that had been cursed. Jericho and its walls had been flattened by God and his people when they had come into the land. And Joshua had pronounced a curse on anyone who would rebuild it. But at the end of 1 Kings 16, when the land is full of people who don't care about the word of God, a developer decides to give it a go. And he pays for it with the life of his two sons. So it's not surprising that in verse 19 here the water was bad and the land unfruitful. That in verse 21 it was causing miscarriage and death for humans and animals. Because it was a city under God's curse. But Elisha comes and removes the curse. It's a picture of what Jesus came to do. Jesus who came to make his blessing flow far as a curse is found. Jesus would come to a cursed planet. He he would come to a people who didn't care about God. Which is all of us at, at one stage if not now. And Jesus would take the curse so that we could live. 
He would defeat death once and for all. He would restore things to the way they were meant to be. So the word of God comes and brings blessing where once there was curse. And if we're Christians, that is what the word of God has done in our lives. And maybe we are dissatisfied about where we are as Christians at the moment or we're dissatisfied about where things are going generally. But if we are Christians, uh, our cursed lives have been replaced by blessing. Uh, We are under God's blessing tonight and not his curse. Whatever Satan may come and, and tempt us with, We have been blessed by God and he cannot undo that. But things are very different with Bethel in verses 23 to the end. With Jericho and Bethel it really is a tale of two cities. Bethel too was a city that had defied God. It had been a centre of the worship of a golden calf for 80 years And so we can be sure that its inhabitants would have had little time for God's prophets. And as Elisha goes past the city, a crowd of young lads come out for the sole purpose of mocking him. We're told that 42 of them were killed, which implies that there were more of them than that. And there is no doubt that this is an uncomfortable passage. But as someone has said, it's not the story of an irritable prophet, but a judging God. This is not about an irritable prophet, but a judging God. It's important as well to realise that the crowd, they're not simply mocking a personal defect of Elisha. They're mocking God's prophet, which was the same as mocking God. And they taunt him, go up, you bald head. What do they mean by that? Do they mean, why don't you go up to heaven the way Elijah has done? Uh, Perhaps, maybe it just means get out of here. Uh, But either way, they're mocking God's prophet. Uh, Some people try to take the sting out of the passage by raising the age of those who were killed. Uh, And while it's true they're not infants, we're probably talking here boys who are 10 to 12 years old. And... Even taking into consideration the fact that in those days people matured earlier, married earlier, died earlier, they're still young. And yet just because you're young tonight doesn't mean that God's word doesn't apply to you. Or that you can leave thinking about God until you're older. These are young people who are sinning and they're being judged for it. But why this particular judgment? Well, it's not a a random judgment. And those in Elisha's day would have known that. Because God had warned the people in Leviticus 26, 22. He said that if they didn't listen to him and do what he said when they were in the promised land. He said, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. So it wasn't a random judgment. It was what God had said would happen if the people didn't listen to him. 
Here God's professed people don't value his word and he sends wild beasts on them to bereave them of their children. Maybe someone will will say, are are these youngsters not just being punished for their own sin here? Are are you saying they're actually being punished for the sin of their parents? Uh, Well, I'm saying that it's both. Because where have these youngsters learned how to curse God's prophets? From their parents. And so their blood really is on their parents' hands. About 10 years ago, a teenager drowned in a reservoir in my hometown. Uh, and a few years after, uh, the, the owner of the reservoir was warning that youths were breaking in every night with power tools. They were, they were cutting through the fence. and They're go- going on the reservoir. They're going out on rowing boats. And he said, if parents aren't curious as to why their sons are away fishing in the dark or why they go out equipped with burglar's tools or why they even come home wet to the skin, what hope can we have? In other words, he is saying that if, if someone else does drown, the parents just can't hold up their hands and blame someone else. Yes, it's possible that a parent could be diligent and a child still sneak out. But he's talking about parents who didn't care what their children were up to. And if that sort of attitude to children's physical safety is serious, if that puts them in danger, then it's a far more serious thing for parents not to tell their children about a God who made them, about a God who loves them, and a God who they must obey. And a God who sent Jesus so they could be forgiven for their sins. I don't think we should imagine the parents sitting down and teaching their children how to mock a prophet in three easy steps. But the children pick up on their parents' attitude. And that's one of the things about parenting. Our children will pick up on what we value even more than on what we say or do. A parent can make sure that their children are in church every week. But if the children know their parents are just coming out of duty... If the children know their parents have no real love for it or value or put any real value on it, then that's what the children will take away. Or if children grew up hearing their parents talking disrespectfully about the ministers, elders or others in the church, then it will be natural for them to do do the same themselves. And if those children walk away from the church that they have never been taught to value, there will be no need for those parents to be shocked or to point the finger at others. So this miracle of judgment isn't as far removed from today as we might think. And if this passage makes us uncomfortable, then that's because it probably should. Because God isn't safe or domesticated. It it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so the same word of God that brings blessing to those who will listen to it also brings judgment to those who won't. The same word brings both healing and harm, deliverance and disaster. And we as a church must be prepared to see both. If you accept God's word and Jesus Christ who it's all about, you'll be saved. But if you reject it, you will be judged and condemned. Because there's no one else to take the curse for you.
So we've seen the need to stick to God's chosen methods, but, but that won't be painless because while we will see some people have their lives transformed and see that their curse turned into blessing, for others their rejection of the word will increase their guilt. The Apostle Paul can say, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And that's, we could, we could put that uh, above the doors of the church, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But does that mean that everyone who smells the perfume of the word will be converted? Well, we wish that was the case. But Paul goes on, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. And so he cries out, Who is sufficient for these things? So as the word of God goes out, there will always be two reactions. And if Paul felt his insufficiency, how much more should we? And yet God's work goes on and God's methods don't change. And so in days of, of rapid change, it can be easy to be overwhelmed. But this chapter shows us that God's work goes on even when times and people change. Shows us that God's work goes on because God doesn't change. And that God still achieves his purposes the same way through the double-edged sword of his word. So where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He's on his throne where he's always been. That, that throne of God that we saw this morning is mentioned 46 times in the book of Revelation. He's on his throne where he's always been and he's with his people in their changing circumstances. So Elijah may be gone, but God remains and his work goes on. Amen. Well, let's sing of our confidence in the God who doesn't change from Psalm 146a, Psalm 146a, page page 356 it's verses 5 through 8 to the tune 257 verses 6 and 7 remind us of Jesus healing the blind and caring for the outcast and yet the the same word that brings blessing to some brings judgment on others uh, the end of verse 7 but the way of all the wicked he will turn aside and thwart and then in verse 8 uh, at the top of page 357 we don't just look backwards but forwards yes the Lord will reign forever Zion your own God is he through unending generations hallelujah give him praise how do we know that God will not forsake us in our generation well because he has promised to be with us always and he is God through unending generations. So Psalm 146a, tune 257, verses 5 to the end. Uh, we'll stand as we sing. <laughs>